Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. I'm Mark Feinstein, Executive Reporter for MLB.com. Thanks for listening as always. We're going to do something a little different. We've done this a couple times this year. Uh, we're going to step aside from my usual conversation with a current executive from a major league team, and we're going to talk to our own executive, my colleague from MLB.com, Jim Duquette, former GM of the Mets and Vice President of Baseball Operations for the Orioles. Jimmy, how you doing, buddy? Mark, what's going on? I got to tell you, before we delve into what we're going to talk about, uh, this podcast has gotten a t- the attention around around baseball. for. An, I, I have heard from, this is just in the last week, I've heard from five different executives slash scouts uh, that have been in the game for a little bit. They're like, Hey, I hear you're doing Fine Sands podcast. I hear you like they're listening, man. They it's a it's a great compliment how much uh, bandwidth you've gotten with this podcast among baseball people. So it's not just the fans, but among executives and scouts out there. So I just I wanted to take that time. It's it's a it's a kind of a shout out to those people who reached out to me, but it's more of a shout out to you uh, because of uh, how well this has been going. I appreciate that, Jim, and feel free to tell all of those executives that if they would like to be guests on the podcast, I am more than happy to uh, to welcome them in and have a conversation about uh, about their careers and about baseball. We've got a lot of fun with it. We're going to have a lot more fun with it. And as far as today goes, we are going to do a special trade deadline edition because, after all, Tuesday is the trade deadline, the non-waiver trade deadline, I should specify. We do have trades that happen in August, and we'll get to that later. Uh, but Jimmy, you've been in a unique position that most of us have not been of being uh, in that executive chair during the month of July and during this week in particular. Uh, so I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about what is that like? I know from a reporter standpoint, uh, this is one of the busiest weeks of the year, uh, at times one of the most frustrating weeks of the year, uh, just because you're, you're competing with so many people and everybody's trying to get the information and find out who's going where and who's on the block and who's not and, uh, and everything that goes with it. So from your standpoint, uh, you know, executives are trying to build their teams all year. Obviously, the offseason is a crucial part uh, of that process. But in terms of the trade deadline and this week in particular, uh, how much more difficult is this week for somebody sitting in that in that GM or, or you know, head of baseball operations chair? So if you, if you haven't been in it, it's hard to describe it, but it but it is one of those where one of those seats and one of those jobs and positions there, there's. There's no other adrenaline rush like it that I can come up with. And, you know, I think that because of 
And yeah, I mean, you better have the adrenaline for these days because the days are lengthy. They're long. I mean, it's it it just is nonstop conversation, texting, and it's not just texting with other clubs. It's texting within your own club. You're you're gathering so much more information now, medical information, uh, statistical information, scouting information, and you're sending you know uh, your your evaluators out to see top players if you're. You know, whatever, whoever you're acquiring, whether you're acquiring you know, someone for your major league club or your minor league club, trying to make sure that your scouts are deployed in the right situations and and trying to anticipate, you know, where the next move might be. In addition to that, you're having nonstop negotiation uh, with the teams to improve your club, either short term with your if you're in the major league pennant race or long term if if you're rebuilding. So, you know, that that part of it. Um, you know, you don't have many opportunities to do that like at the deadline. The deadline is where where teams are willing to, let's say, overpay or pay more for. So it's a huge opportunity, and you want to make sure you don't mess it up. I think that's where the most <laughs> of the pressure comes from. Don't mess it up. And, and you know, that, that there's so many different factors that people don't aren't, aren't aware of, financial, medical, uh that that could mess up a deal never mind whether you match up with them or not what's a, a harder time for the year for, for an executive the off season where you're dealing with agents and trying to sign free agents in addition to potentially making trades or this week where there's maybe a little bit of a more of an urgency to get something done yeah i i think this time of the year is the hardest in in the whole calendar year for in a front office from for a general manager you know the winter time there's more of a pace to it right there's there's more more options but you can kind of pace things out you can spread out the the duties um there's not as much urgency because you have other options you you if you know your plan a doesn't come to fruition you can go to plans b or c or d and oftentimes those those plans become you know the ones that you end up liking in the end better It, it it just happens an awful lot that way um versus you know at the deadline you know, you have two or three teams. Let's say you're you're trying to trade a major league piece. Sometimes you only have two or three teams that are interested in your player. Let's say it's even four four teams, and this is your one shot to to really impact your your organization. Um, and so there's pressure there. Uh, there's you know pressure from your from your own clubhouse sometimes to to not do something. You know, not, not especially if he's a popular player within a clubhouse. Uh, there's pressure from your owner to sometimes save a little bit of money uh, if you can for him, since, you know, you, they, uh, they're the ones that are paying the bill and, and, you know, they want to see you get value back in return. And you know, it's just, it's the pace that I think creates all of that extra pressure at this time of year. So listen, it's exhilarating, but it, it's also a little bit nerve wracking. It's not for the faint of heart. Then I would imagine you throw in the fact that while you're trying to make all these deals, your team's playing games on the field. And we've seen right. some instances recently, and, and this happens every year of, you know, the, the, the Orioles pull Manny Machado off of a, out of a game because the field is wet and they don't want, don't want to risk him getting hurt. How much are you holding your breath uh, during July and this week in particular uh, when you're, you're watching guys in the minor leagues and you're just, you know, you know that a certain guy is, uh, is getting interest or, or, you know, you may be, be ready to move a guy and you got to make sure he doesn't get hurt. Yeah. I, and, and that's, that's the, you know, the, the area, you know, again, that's another factor that, that plays into this is, 
you know, you have regular guys that, you know, have some kind of injury history that, you know, are offered up in deals or the potential risk. It's, ha- it's happened to me in the past where I, there was a key player in a deal that ends up getting injured. Like the, 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 we're ready to announce the deal the next morning. He gets injured in the game the night before and they will have to rework the deal sometimes. Um, and sometimes that player, you know, the, the opposing team says, you know what, I don't want the player now he's injured. Uh, or, or what you see sometimes with teams is, Hey, this guy's medical risk is so high. We need another player, you know, and that becomes part of the negotiation. So, you know, the deals are never, even when you get to the point where you have a deal pending medical evaluations or pending a physical, the deal's never really done, you know, until, until you fi- that final kind of uh, push where you say you got a deal. So, you know, that, that part of it um, is really, you know, that's the nuance uh, for these deals that make things complicated. There are a lot of, of deals that have been disrupted or, or, or let's say rejected uh, because of that. I think back to the Astros and the Orioles last year with Zach Britton was so close to being traded and two of the players came up injured on the Astros side. They tried to find equal substitutes. And then when the Astros tried to find an equal substitute, uh, the owner for the Orioles didn't want to make the deal. So, you know, that just, that's, those are complicating factors. It's difficult to make a deal if you have an owner that gets involved too, it makes it almost impossible. I remember covering the Yankees in 2010, I believe it was, they had a deal in place for Cliff Lee with Seattle. And David Adams, you know, minor league infielder who was part of the deal. uh, The the Mariners didn't like the medicals. There was something with his ankle and uh, all of a sudden the deal was off. And and hours later he was headed to Texas. So, uh, and then obviously, you know, Texas beat the Yankees in the ALCS that year. So it's amazing how, you know, a a small medical issue for a guy who wasn't even the chief component of the deal. Remember that I believe was Jesus Montero was the major piece in that deal. Uh, You know, can botch the whole deal and all of a sudden, uh, you know, all of a sudden the, the fortunes of the whole baseball season change. I, I had a similar uh, situation for me when I was with the Mets, when we, we, you know, we, at the point in time in the, you know, four, we were, we were, you know, probably six games out, but we felt like we were in the pennant race. We're trying to trade. We'd already traded for uh, Victor Zambrano for Casimir. And, you know, that one unfortunately didn't work out. We'll, we we'll get a, to that. <laughs> yeah, we, we got the, an injured player in some, some regards coming back, but, the one that I was going to mention was we, we traded for Chris Benson. It was a three-team trade with Kansas City. We were trading a catcher, one of our, our catchers named Justin Huber, to Kansas City. And we were getting back a, uh, we were getting back a player who ended up being Jose Batista, who we were flipping to Pittsburgh uh, for, for Benson and Jeff Kepinger. And the kid, Justin Huber, the night before uh, in a game in, in our double-A club, Ends up getting uh, he was he was a catcher he got he got uh, taken out in a in a play at the plate on a slide, and ended up injuring his knee and needing help getting off the field. Uh, we had to the next day I, I found out from our farm director I had to call Allard Baird the GM of the Royals to tell him what had happened, and it, w- it was in doubt whether this deal was going to go through, and we had to renegotiate some things. We had to renegotiate who would pay for the surgery, which ended up being our responsibility, who had to pay for the physical therapy. That ended up being our responsibility. And they were looking at him potentially as another position other than catcher anyway. You know, they were looking at him as a potential first baseman. So it wasn't as big of a deal, luckily for them. Um, but he wasn't able to catch after that injury. And, you know, that was hurting a, a big part of his value at the time. 
lucky enough, Allard was um, was easy to kind of work through some of those details. And, you know, again, it's nothing that you can do. It's out of your control. But that was a, a last minute deal that almost didn't happen for us. How much does your relationship with GMs factor into the trade deadline? Obviously, some GMs work better with the other with others. We've seen, for instance, you know, Jerry Depoto and the Mariners. Jerry Depoto in general has made, I think, I don't know, 10, 12 trades with the Rays over recent years. Right. Um, do you find yourself, uh, you know, sort of sort of looking at the, the teams that you have good relationships with more than you may uh, a GM that you've found difficult to deal with in the past? How, how does that impact sort of how you look at the trade deadline landscape when you're sitting in that chair? So sometimes it, so it's a great it's a great question. I think you see a lot of those trade. We've seen Oakland and, and Washington and Nationals, right? Mike Rizzo and Billy Bean deal with each other in the past. Uh, you know, I think I think you know, there are teams that you you know just see eye to eye with or get along well with that that you know have kind of the similar philosophies, more straightforward, less negotiation. Hey, this is more direct. I like this guy. I like this guy. I'll do it for them. And you're like, all right, that's a fair deal. We'll do it. And you, it's that quick. Um, or, you know, you have disagreements over the value of the player, but over time you're able to, to find some common ground. And those are the ones, you, you know, you tend to kind of go back to those, especially the other aspect is, you know, their organizations well. So it's a good relationship uh, with the GM and, and you've maybe had several conversations. Uh, your evaluators, you know, know their system well. There's a lot of different factors that play into being able to do that many deals, but it's primarily, I, I believe, the relationship and communication uh, between the two GMs that make those deals work. And, you know, conversely, if you don't have a trust factor with the opposing guy, then you're less likely to to make a deal. I mean, there have been plenty of GMs along the way that, you know, I didn't I didn't have a good feeling full with uh, and for in the in my conversations with them. It felt like they were trying to rip you off. Um, and so, I, I tended to just distance myself from them or, or try to communicate with with one of their uh, other executives to see if there's a way we could you know kind of figure out a deal. So, you know, I think that relationship matters a lot. And you tend to see, you know, the guys that have been in the game a longer time, they tend to be able to make deals together. I think Kevin Towers is the one guy that that to me was one of the most straightforward and easygoing guys to, to make a deal with. Uh, God, God rest his soul. He was, he was, you know, that was one of his great strengths was his ability to communicate and relate with anybody. And he was one of the guys I enjoyed making deals with the most. Now, one thing that we've, we've seen this week in particular that we haven't really seen a whole lot of over the years is teams trading within the division. You never want to, you know, trade a guy to a team in your division who's going to come back and haunt you, uh, you know, for the next 10 years. Yet we saw the Blue Jays trade Jay Happ to the Yankees. We saw the Rays trade Nathan Evaldi to the to the Red Sox. Um, you know, we've seen other deals within the division where, you know, uh, you know or- Orioles trading Zach Britton to the Yankees. Has that changed? Uh, has that is that was that more of a, a taboo thing? Uh, years past. I mean, we have you know the, Brian Cashman always says he speaks to twenty eight GMs regularly. The only team he really won't trade with is the Red Sox because it's just not worth it. Um, you know, Yankees and Mets haven't made a whole lot of deals yet. There was some buzz about, you know, the Yankees maybe trying to get to Grom. Have those things sort of lightened up over the years as teams just look and say, look, if I'm not going to win this year, I don't care who wins. If it's if it's the Yankees, the Red Sox, or, or the Cubs, makes no difference to me. I'm trying to make my team better, uh, you know, in the near future. I, I think it has softened a little bit. It's still, still difficult to do sometimes if it's a 
long-term piece that you're getting back. So a guy that can come back and you're going to have to face or compete uh, with uh, for the next couple of years, especially if you you get into those, those years where, okay, that this particular year, you're not, you're not going to be competitive, but you know, you feel like you are the next year. You certainly don't want to trade a, a controllable piece to a a division rival. Um, I think currently, you know, Zach Wheeler would be a great fit in Atlanta, but, you know, and he's from Atlanta, but you know what? You have control of them through next year too. And do the Mets, if they think they can compete next year, they, they don't want to be trading a piece uh, to continue to, you know, help their competitor within the, within the division. If it's a rental, you know, in that particular year, you're not doing well. I think you're more inclined to, to, it's a little bit easier to make those deals. And we've seen that over, over the years. The one you mentioned earlier about Cliff Lee, that one was at the time a little bit shocking that not only did he not go to the Yankees, but he went in the division to Texas and, and, you know, Jackson Rensick and, and John Daniels made that deal and they didn't care. It didn't, it didn't bother. Um, it didn't bother Seattle because they got back their, their top pick uh, at the time. It was Justin smoke. Um, they got the piece that they wanted. And so did, so did Texas. And I think that's, you know, that was, I feel like that was one of the starts to where, it hasn't been as big of a deal trading within your division lately. How tough is it when you're looking at these trades and you're looking at, you know, bettering your team in the near future versus long-term, how tough is it to trade away a top prospect? I mean, knowing that uh, the one that comes to mind, obviously, you know, the Cubs trading Glaber Torres in that package to the Yankees for a role as Chapman. Now the Cubs probably don't win the world series without Chapman that year. So obviously it was worth it. They broke the 108 year curse, et cetera. But now Theo Epstein has to watch and Jed Hoyer have to watch Glaber Torres make an all-star team in his first season and potentially be, you know, a, a franchise type player for the Yankees for the next 10 plus years. Yeah. How tough is it to weigh those things in your head when you're looking at the short term, uh, especially knowing that, you know, GMs don't have lifetime contracts and if you don't win, you're going to get fired most likely. So, uh, right. you know, is that a really tough thing to wrestle with internally? It, it, yeah, it's very difficult because most of the people within your organization don't want to do it. And so you're really, really, if you're in the GM seat, you're swimming against the tide in that spot, you know, uh, to, to, um, to make a deal like that. And in the, you know, the, the Cubs situation, you know, they hadn't won the world series in over a hundred years at the time. And we know Theo felt like Chapman was the final piece and so that's able to you're able to justify it a little bit. And I remember even he and Jed at the time telling me and telling everybody else too, like, yeah, hey, prospects prospects are cool, but championships are cooler, right? And <laughs> you know that that to me that line is one of the ones that stands out the most at this time of the year. You know, especially if you felt like Chapman was that piece that you know you're a little, it's still you're still reluctant to trade a top prospect, but. Um, it makes it a heck of a lot easier if you're sitting there with a championship ring at the end of it. So, you know, yeah, they, he knew, they knew that Torres, what kind of player he's going to be, maybe not even this, they didn't know he was going to be this good this early, maybe, but they, they were pretty, you know, I, I think aware of that. Um, and, and you know what, good, good by the Yankees, Yankees had, you know, had found the team at the deadline. A lot of times finding the team that's, let's say the most desperate will, you know, and that they were desperate to win a championship. Um, I think they found the right team to go ahead and move Chapman in that situation. Brian Cashman loves the phrase prospects are suspect. And that comes into play when you're talking about a proven big leaguer. I remember with the Curtis Granderson trade was an offseason trade, not a deadline trade, but when they acquired him and they traded away Austin Jackson and everybody said, well, Austin Jackson could be an all-star. 
Brian Cash would say that Curtis Granderson is an all-star. So, you know, if right. you're hoping Austin Jackson has a Curtis Granderson type career, we're getting Curtis Granderson and, you know, 28 years old. Uh, that's what you're hoping Austin Jackson becomes, but there's no guarantee that's going to happen. So I'm sure that plays into it as well. You've been on both sides of, of the buyer and the seller yep. situation. Um, it seems like sellers are always putting out these just astronomical prices initially, and they usually come down some. Uh, is there any reason not to, to aim high when you're, when you're first going out there with some pieces to sell? No, I, I mean, I, th- I always kind of chuckle when I see the reports out there. And the, this, this team executive uh, was shocked at the price tag, what the te- what uh, team Y was asking for their player and if it was an impactful type player. I kind of chuckle because that, that's what your job as a general manager. Like the Orioles, I saw a Phillies executive or somebody with the Phillies was like, oh, my God, the, the price tag was – I couldn't believe how high it was for Manny Machado. I'm going, wait a minute. That's what you're supposed to do at this time of year. You're supposed to ask for a high price tag. And you know what? You might just get it. That's part of the negotiation. Um, conversely, you know, you, you can also uh, knock yourself out of a deal by making a low ball offer that doesn't even make you competitive. Teams will go, well, you know, they're not interested. Uh, so, you know, there's an art to that kind of making sure you don't overpay, but, but not, you know, giving a less than stellar uh, foot forward, we'll call it, you know, on your initial offer to show that, you know, show that organization that you're, that you're actually serious in acquiring a player of Manny's caliber. So, um, you know, that's, that's the, you know, what the, the asking price. I remember I asked for too much. I had Miguel Tejada when I was with the Orioles and we're trying to trade him. And we had a couple of teams that were, were interested and the angels were the ones that were the most interested and we had a really good deal. It turned out to be, uh, in the end, I negotiated Irving Santana and Eric Ibar. They were both uh, young, controllable p- uh, pieces. And I went back to the owner and said, this is this is as good as we're ever going to get. We knew the organization as well as anybody. Um, we thought they were going to be long-term pieces. And I went back to ownership, and they did not want to do the deal. They didn't want to trade Tejada, even though he was on the decline. He said, I'll do it if you ask for one more player because I had been discussing with him the different players that we liked. And I'm like, listen, if I ask for that player, they're just going to say no and they're going to walk away. He goes, I just want you to ask for him. Sure enough, I asked for the player and, and Bill Stillman, who's the GM at the time, said, nope, you guys are being pigs. We're, you're giving me the excuse to walk away. And that's what happened. We did. We walked away without a deal. So, you know, it, you I, I've seen that backfire when you ask for too much at times and the deal went away and you know, we were able to resurrect some other options out there, but none of them ended up getting the the approval that was necessary from ownership. That's got to be frustrating, right? I mean, you spend all this time on a deal uh, and then your owner knocks it down, but again, he's the boss. So you sort of have to just eat it, right? There's nothing, not much you can do I at learned, that point. Yeah. I learned along the way, you know, to, so, so, you know, there was a, there was a two week process for that. And there was another one where we were going to trade to uh, Tejada to the Astros for Royals, Wald and Morgan Ensberg at the time. And, and even Adam Ensberg, we, it was a big deal at the time, but I learned, I learned a good lesson uh, that, that, you know, I, I wish if I was, if I was my younger self <laughs> in that situation, again, I wish I'd had somebody kind of giving me the advice, but it, you know, we had, we had an owner at the time that wanted to be somewhat hands off uh, until the final final uh, decision making was there, and then of course he wanted to be in the loop on it. But that was a period of time where 
I feel we should have and I should have get, uh, given him more frequent updates on what was going on just so that the the deal itself, I think in some ways, I go back and look at it, it probably surprised him um, and and that he wasn't he wasn't convinced that 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 he should trade his star player in giving him such short notice and especially, you know, an owner who's used to waiting and waiting in his law and his, you know, from his law and a law degree in his law offices, waiting is, is your friend on the law side and baseball. It isn't for the many times. And I think I always go back and think about that and go, man, we could have done that deal. If, if maybe I had communicated it a little bit sooner to him and kind of given him a little more uh, runway to consider it. Now, I would imagine like everything else in our world, technology has changed the way that the trade deadline works and the way executives operate. Uh, your last years with the Orioles, 06 and 07, text messaging was probably just coming into play uh, as a really, yes. you know, sort of regular form of communication. Uh, cell phones were there, so at least you didn't have, you weren't chained to a desk like I'm sure guys were in the 80s or even the 90s. Um, how different do you think it is now the way teams can can operate just knowing that, you know, GMs can just text each other all the time and, you know, conversation, they could have carry on conversations with four people at the same time, you know, negotiating back and forth. Uh, how, do you think that, how do you think that's changed the landscape? No, it's, it's a good question. Cause I, you know, certainly the communication uh, is more constant, um, uh, more, I would say, and also year round. So, so we're all, accessible we always were accessible by phone but you could all, but you could always turn the phone off not answer the phone and you could always decide to, to, to turn the you know not 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 read the text or not respond to the text but you're con- you know if you're constantly bombarded uh, with the, that form of communication it's it's instantaneous that to me is what I think is the big difference so when we we, we did texting uh, or emailing at the time to more to memorialize the offers and the deals in case we had a deal in place, we could go back and refer to it, refer to the details, refer to the conversations, and then, you know, draw up the paperwork and, and sign off on it. Now teams use that, those, you know, any of the social media, but primarily the, the texting and emailing to make proposals over and over you can send out multiple different proposals on a given player and a given day um and so you know you're you're i think in some ways more efficient in that sense um you're able to kind of communicate to it broader but uh it also you know comes with this you know mentality of when do you when do you turn it off when do you when do you kind of give yourself a a mental break and get away from it a little bit i think that when i talk to some of the GMs now, younger GMs, that's the balance that they try to find, um, you know, being at home, uh, being around their young families or being around their families in general. Uh, but also at this time of the year, just realizing that, you know, the uh, timing is of the essence. When you look at salary dump trades versus just good old fashioned baseball trades, how different do you have to have a mindset in terms of offers, um, you know, obviously now a lot of teams are trying to stay under the CBT threshold, so that comes into play. Um, but we, we've seen over the years a lot of salary dump trades where you look and you say, well, they didn't really get a great return for that guy. They just wanted to get rid of the contract. Um, right. How do you look at that? And do you think big market teams, obviously, in, in those cases, have a great advantage? I mean, I think back to you know, the Yankees trading for Bobby Abreu. 
they didn't give up all yep. that much for him. They just took on the salary. Philly just wanted to get rid of the money. Um, big market teams seem that that maybe seems to be the one area where a big market team would have a really big advantage over a small market team. So I'll, I can I can kind of uh, tag that because I was involved with the Orioles. We were trying to get a Bray during that same period because he had he was controlled for another year, I believe, after that, uh, or maybe even two after that. And so we were in it on it. But because when I was with the Orioles, we were we were going to uh, trade out uh, a contract in Rodrigo Lopez to try to reduce Abreu's amount that that uh, for that for that year, and Brian Cashman didn't have didn't have to worry about that. He could take on his entire salary, and so the Phillies were able to get the player. So, yeah, I, to to your point, it is a big advantage for some of these uh, large revenue teams, and the kind of the one equalizer now is the luxury tax that you know if teams are trying to stay below it they don't want to exceed it and you know the, the penalty the financial penalty for it there's at least some uh drag let's say on on the ability for those high revenue teams to 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 make a deal like that but you know as they've they've shown in the past it you know it it, it wasn't necessarily an impediment um and i think that's the thing that that um you know the large revenue teams uh, do, certainly have the advantage on if they're doing a great job with their system, they can they can do both. They can develop young players, they can take on salary players and not have to give up any of their top prospects. And there, there is a there's a definite advantage uh, in that area, especially if you're smart about it, which the Yankees have become and the Dodgers and you know some of those large market revenue teams have, have done a great job in that in that area. As you're going through the process in July, and you're watching what other teams are doing, you're watching the other trades that are being made, how does that change the market? Uh, when I'm looking, thinking right now for this summer, uh, you know, the Mets trade Familia, and, and universally around the game, people thought they got a very light return for him. He was one of the better rental relievers on the market. So after that trade gets made, and then you're looking at guys like Britain, and you're looking at uh, other closers on the market or other relief pitchers on the market, I would imagine some GMs would, would say, to, to one of their counterparts, well, look, this is what the market was for Familia. That's what you're going to expect. That's what you should expect now. Some teams hold firm to their initial uh, asking prices. How does the market get changed by one deal to the next? Yeah, it, it that to me, I think, is the un, under um, reported, we'll say, or un, less talked about type of situation that you're trying to find equal deals that have happened in the past. Um, to kind of justify your asking price. And then you're trying to you know, maintain that high level, you know, this year as you get close to the deadline, but each deal that gets done, you're comparing, it, it, you're comparing yourself and comparing the player to the one that was currently traded to gauge the market and to monitor the market. So, you know, with the Orioles, luckily for the Orioles, they had had enough conversations with teams. They were far enough down the road that when the familiar trade was made, um, it, it did impact them a little bit, but it the, because they were close to doing the deal themselves, it was a little bit of a blip. I mean, a team or two kind of, you know, tried to tried to, you know, renegotiate, but there was enough interest from several teams to to go ahead and and get what they were asking for. Conversely, though, uh, I don't think it was a coincidence when the Yankees. Uh, traded for Britain, you know, if you remember, they were looking at a starting a rotation piece and the asking price on Jay Happ was real high. Well, 
it wasn't long where you were reporting and others were reporting that the Yankees were now maybe going to go towards the relief market because it, it was too expensive for the starters. They go out and make a deal for Britain. Oh, by the way, is that coincidence that Jay Happ's price tag came down like a day later? No, it, it wasn't. Uh, you know, so the market just it, it, there's an ebb and a flow to it. Sometimes you start out looking at a top of the rotation piece and you think you can get X. And then as the as the deadline gets a little bit closer, uh, you realize, wow, I'm not going to get that. And you got to either cut your losses and, and take a lower or decide not to trade the player altogether. Well, that goes back to what we talked about before in terms of the initial high asking prices. I mean, there were reports that the Blue Jays were trying to get Justice Sheffield in the J-Hap deal. They ended up getting Brendan Drury, Billy McKinney. And there are some people around the game who thought the Yankees overpaid uh, for, for you know, two plus months of J-Hap before he becomes a free agent. So I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder. Um, but I guess if your initial asking price is so high, then if you drop it and it makes it look like you've really, you're settling, you're still getting a good price for that player in a lot of cases. That's right. And, and, and again, that's like you said, it's all part of the negotiation. You, you can always decide to take, not, you know, to, to not move the player, um, you know, and that, that's always a possibility. And I think to me, you know, that, that particular deal you're talking about with, with the Blue Jays, I mean, you know, I thought it was a reasonable deal. I didn't. I think uh, from the Yankees side, they gave up players that that really didn't ha- didn't really fit much for them long term. Drury certainly wasn't going to fit for them long term, and McKinney has bounced around a little bit. And it was some question whether you know. I think, I think at most he's going to be a fourth outfielder. Some people think he's going to be better than that. So, but they've got Florial as a number one prospect too, or that's so right. a number one position player prospect. So you know, there's an overlap there. That's right. That's exactly right. And so Florial, they didn't have to move any of their top guys to get Hap or Britain. And when I say top guys, top three or four guys, um, they they still hold on to Chance Adams as well while we're at it. So, you know, I think those it's all in line with what you're seeing around the industry. And I think you know it was a fair deal. I just I don't think it was an overpay. We all talk about you know oh this is the Yankees number five prospect. This is the Orioles number nine prospect. But you guys, I mean, those lists don't mean anything to executives, right? I mean, they, they examine they the don't. player because the number 15 guy in the Yankees organization might be the number three guy in another organization. Right. That, that That's the trick about it is, you know, some of these teams who have a lot of depth in their system, uh, you know, they're you say, well, I'm, I'm going to get a top 10 player uh, that that, you know, for other organizations might be their top five. Um, you know, the Atlanta Braves took their top nine guys off the table for any rental. Um, and so, but if you were able to secure one of them, that might've, he might've stacked up as one of the top prospects in the game, you know, top 20 prospects, you know, they have a couple of good pitchers at the top, at the top that, you know, you know that I think, um, you know, you would love to uh, covet or they might have a ranking, you know, by these public, uh, some of these uh, publications of, of, uh, you know, five or six or seven, you know, it was number seven ranking, but the organization internally has them ranked higher than that. Like really the, the most important rankings are the ones, you know, internal, but I will say I've talked to enough executives who do pay attention to those public <laughs> ranking systems because you can use it to your, you know, in your favor sometimes too. Talking about, you said before, you know, a team could always decide we're just not going to trade the player. That's probably harder now than it was 10 years ago before the qualifying offer system came to play. And there was the type A type B, you were going to get compensation for that guy if he left, no matter what. And now you have to make that qualifying offer to get that compensation. That that seems like it's something that would have changed the game a lot in terms of uh, deciding, well, we'll just hold on to this guy and let him walk in free agency. 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, when you held on to a guy that was going to be a free agent, you had, you know, type A free agents, you had the type B free agents who was, it was a pick in the you know, second round, even a C, where where you were getting some form of compensation no matter what. So if you didn't like the, the return, then, you know what, heck with you, I'll take my chances in the draft. But that has all changed, you know, and I think, I think, I don't know if it's better or not, but the way it is now is import as important uh, if you're going to get a, a, a draft pick out of it is the, the bonus pool money that you have to spread out. Um, and, and, but if you're not going to make a qualifying offer to your free agent, then you, you're better off just cutting your, we'll call it cutting your losses. Uh, you're better off getting, you know, a couple of, even if it's mid-level prospects that can maybe help at the major league level. So that has been a different change. You'd see, you know, tw- part of the reason you see 27, 28 relief pitchers moving is the impact that, you know, the relief, relief course can have on your team. The other aspect is you're not getting anything for them. You're not making a qualifying offer you know, so that they might accept it at 17 million for any of those relief pitchers. So you might as well try to get what you can. All right. So in preparation for this podcast, I decided to do something fun and go back and look at the four trade deadlines that you were, that you were involved yep. in uh, two with the Mets, two with the Orioles, uh, 2003, there were some pretty big deals made around the league. Uh, the Cubs got Kenny Lofton and Aramis Ramirez. The Yankees got Aaron Boone, traded Robin Ventura out to the Dodgers. Uh, the Giants got Sidney Ponson. There were a few deals. D-backs got Raul Mondesi. You guys with the Mets, you were sellers that year. Uh, right. You made three notable trades. You traded Armando Benitez to the Yankees uh, for three minor leaguers. You traded Jeremy Burnitz to the Dodgers for three players. And you traded Roberto Alomar to the White Sox for three players. Um, take us through that, that trade deadline as a seller with some pretty notable names. Uh, what was that like? So each one of them, you know, were unfortunately on the decline. Uh, you know, I think with, with, um, the interesting part of, to, to the Burnett's trade for me was, um, I see, I, I was one of those guys that tried to, uh, tried to, you know, communicate as much as I could with a player and give them a little bit of heads up. I was trying to take some of the some of the stress out of it, you know, they heard their names mentioned. So I'm like, listen, there's nothing to that. But when there is, I'll keep you informed. Oh, by the way, there are a couple of teams that are interested, uh, you know, for, for Jeremy Burnett. Hey, Jeremy, I know you're a Southern California guy. Uh, Dodgers want to give you a heads up. Dodgers are interested. I don't know if they're going to step up and bank the best offer, but I want to give you a heads up. There's a chance that he could send you home. Oh, that would be great. He gives me a big hug. Oh, like a dec- the next day we trade him to the Dodgers. Uh, Alomar, um, was more he he wanted more detail. He was a worrier uh, you know, from a from a uh, you know personality side of things. He specifically asked if I could try to work out a deal for the White Sox. We didn't have a ton of other offers, so that one was a little bit easier for me to just go to Chicago, uh, talk to Kenny Williams, and and say hey let's 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 figure out a deal for Alomar because he would like to go there and. Uh, you know, there's one other team that's interested. There really wasn't. Let's do the best deal could. <laughs> and so, and so, the, how often does that happen? How often do you have to play poker? You gotta and play poker. Bluff that you have other teams yeah. interested. It, the, the, you have to play poker when there's not a ton of interest in your player. And I think that's the hard part. You know, the other teams kind of know, like, okay, well, I know 
<laughs> you know, it's not like the, the, you know, the, at the time you could keep things a little closer to your best and keep it quiet. Now things get out so much. There was no know. MLB trade rumors back then. <laughs> there was no trade rumors. There was no Mark. I mean, Mark Feinstein wasn't Mark Feinstein. He wasn't good <laughs> all the time. The young so, Yankee beat writer back then. Yes, yes. He was up and coming Yankee beat writer. It wasn't like calling, you know, getting the, the latest on the White Sox and the, and the Mets. Uh, the Benitez deal was the one that was the toughest one for me because I had a deal with the Red Sox uh, before a game on Sunday night uh, baseball and Benitez crashed and burned against the Yankees um, where he walked in the winning run, two two runs in that game, just walked, walked four guys in a row. And you could see the the air kind of leaving, <laughs> leaving the room on the interest level of Armando. And so I had to wait two more weeks and then the Yankees – came back to me and we were able to say, Oh, we were able to save salary in that, in that deal uh, for the Yankees, not really get back much in return. Um, and he didn't pitch, you know, he was going to be the setup man for Rivera and he didn't really pitch well. So two weeks later, cash flipped him for, for Jeff Nelson. So, and that was, a, that was an August deal, a waiver deal, claim, waiver claim deal. So we didn't have a ton. I don't, and not many, a couple of those guys came out, turned out to be big leaguers, but they weren't, there wasn't anyone of, of note that became like impactful guys for us. People always love talking about, imagine if there was Twitter back then when X happened. Imagine if there was Twitter when the Yankees traded for Armando Benitez from the Mets. That would have just been a good time. I got a good story for you on that. So I did, I pulled that deal off at the All-Star game. It was in Chicago. Uh, uh, I think it was AT&T. I forget now what the White Sox called their park that year. U.S. Cellular Field. Maybe it was U.S. Cellular. Yeah, that's what it was. So I do a deal. I do a deal with cash during the game. I come to come to the, uh, the 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 conclusion. We decide to announce it the next day, so I decide to go out and have a couple of beers with a cut with a um, a friend of mine in the Mets uh, business operations. And we have a couple there. It's late, it's about midnight Central Time. We run into a couple of Yankee fans in the bar. They come up, they recognize me, they ask, "Where are you trading Benitez?" And I tell them, "I'm telling them to, I'm trading him to the Yankees." And they thought I was kidding, <laughs> and they were like. Like no, no, don't trade. No, you're not trading him to the Yankees. We don't want him. We don't want him. I'm like, I'm serious. We're trading him to you. Well, before I knew it, like a, a, an hour later, I'm getting phone calls from New York, from the, the reporters, TVs, everything else, understanding that we had a deal with the Yankees, and so it blew up in my face at the time. <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to be funny, and and I ended up leaking the deal on my own, which which ended up being my downfall because I didn't get an ounce of sleep the rest of the night. <laughs> The, the the night of sleep, the night of J- July thirty first, must be a really good night of sleep. You know, it's the best. I mean, <laughs> it, it used to be midnight. So that's right. Know, that's right. MLB finally sparked up. So you know what? We're going to shorten this thing up. It was five o'clock. It's six o'clock now. It's four o'clock. Uh, it, you know, you just kind of get to, you get to that point, and you know your body kind of shuts down for the evening at a certain period. You, I remember it. You know, several times having a a nice meal and it's just going yes. to bed early and, and getting up the next morning. Yeah. The, the move to four o'clock was celebrated by baseball writers everywhere. Yes, uh, it was. Your, your yes. second year as the GM of the Mets, again, a very active trade deadline around the league. Of course, Nomar Garcia para gets traded from the Red Sox to the Cubs for Orlando Cabrera and Doug McAvich. Steve Finley went to the Dodgers in a five player deal. The Yankees and white Sox flipped Esteban Loiza and Jose Contreras, uh, Paul LaDuca and, and uh, Juan Encarnacion go to the Marlins for Brad Penny and a couple other players. Um, you made some, oh, and Carlos Beltran, of course, goes to the Astros. That was a, a nice uh, move for them. You made a couple of moves that that uh, July as well. You mentioned the Chris Benson deal earlier. Uh, yep. 
you mentioned the Scott Casimir, Victor Zambrano deal, uh, and you guys also flipped Cream uh, Garcia to the Orioles for Mike DeJean. Ooh, take us through that deadline. What th- th- in that year? You're a buyer, not a seller. So how is that experience uh, different for you? So that that was that was a lot of fun. We we were so that year we were trying to bring our payroll down. We were we were well the year I took over O three we were over the luxury tax that year. It was one hundred and fifteen million. So it was so it seems low now. But so we had to our strategy was to have a competitive team in O four and O five and try to bring the payroll down about thirty million bucks, which is not an easy task to do. But to be able to do that, to be able to win, you, we were going to have to do some creative things. We needed a better starting pitching. And we needed controllable starting pitching. And that year, the two best controllable starting pitchers, well, one was controllable in Zambrano. He was a little, he was wild, but he was, man, he was, he was electric in the American League East for Tampa. Um, sporadic, but electric. And then, you know, uh, Chris Benson, who was also available, he was a free agent at the end of the year. But we felt, I knew the agent well. I felt if we were able to trade for him, we could do a, uh, uh, work out a, a, a multi-year deal. So we were willing to move some prospects. You know, the, the one that obviously we get Benson, we talked about that. The Casmer one was interesting because we had a lot of debate um, within internally of what kind of pitcher Scott Casmer was going to be. And you talk about information flow. Our medical group felt like for a lot of reasons, uh, but they didn't think he was going to be able to last as a starting pitcher. He had some elbow issues in the draft when he drafted him. He had a, a iffy uh, elbow ligament that the, the doctors were convinced was going to need Tommy John, uh, you know, within the next three or four years. And we thought physically he was going to be more of a back-end reliever than he was going to be a starter. So that evaluation, we were going to try to take, that was our best chip to go out and try to get a controllable upside starter um, you know, and, and, and so we, we identified a couple of teams, but Tampa was the main one. We didn't really shop at Casimir because, you know, we knew it was going to be, uh, one of those where, uh, you know, you start shopping your top prospect, they start wondering about why are you shopping your top prospect, right? So it's one of those deals you don't, you don't do lightly, but you're only willing to do it for, if you get the type of player in return, uh, that you're that you're looking for, and he fit all of our criteria. We had a couple of scouts who knew Zambrano and knew his makeup, um, knew him knew him when he was a, a position player before he was converted to a pitcher. So, we had a lot of good information on him. We did not know that he had an elbow issue, and our, our doctors never never found. Um, and I still think to this day it was uh, purposely hidden, um, but we weren't uh, able or willing to push or complain to the commissioner's office about it. And so we made the deal. And after like two or three starts, Zambrano got injured and never really recovered. And Zambrano, I mean, Casimir ended up being a, a good starting pitcher. And by the way, I still don't think he's had the arm issue that our doctors thought. Like, I think he had, he's had a hip issue, but I don't think he ever had the arm issue. And I don't think he ever had Tommy John. So the importance of medical is, is critical in making the right decisions these days. That was a deal that Met fans lamented for a long time, and it's still one of those deals that people bring up. How much does that, you know, as you go forward in your career and, and while you're still with the team and you go to other teams, how much does a move like that sort of eat at you when you, when you I mean, every, look, there's a winner, there's a loser in every trade. Very, very few times does, does a trade happen and both sides both benefit perfectly and it, you know, works out great. Uh, right. Does that stay with you for a long time? So, yeah, well, it, it does in the sense that you want to make sure that, you know, if you're in that situation again, you want to make sure 
you know, what was the, was the right, what was the process? Would you have changed the process around, you know, though, you know, would, you know, would, would you have done, you know, the same type of uh, uh, deal maybe somewhere else? I mean, there, those are the things that you kind of go back and try to evaluate. Self-evaluation is important, right? In any, in any line of work and in any deal that you do, especially when it doesn't work out. So I think that's, you know, how I always looked at it. I always, you know, I always looked at, okay, well, there's plenty of deals out there, good and bad that haven't worked out. Um, you know, and in this one, in the end, Casimir didn't turn out to be the pitcher that the industry thought he was going to be, but he still turned to be, turned out to be a pretty successful guy along the way. It would have been fine if Zambrano ended up being the pitcher that we thought that he was going to be. And, he, and that, that to me is where, where it broke down. So, you know, that, that's where, you know, I think if you have second thoughts about it, that's where I have the second thoughts on it is we should have done a better, better job on the medical aspect. We should have been a little bit more forceful and looking at that or, or even pushing the fact that he might have had a pre-existing injury. Fast forward a couple of years, you're in Baltimore, 2006, 2007. A couple of, you know, some big trades happen in the league those two years, 06. The Dodgers got Greg Maddox from the Cubs uh, with the Bobby Brayu deal that we spoke about before. Uh, Carlos Lee and Nelson Cruz go to the Rangers from the Brewers. Uh, 07, Eric Gagne to the Red Sox from Texas. Obviously, Mark Teixeira, that big deal to the Braves from Texas. The Orioles don't make any moves in those two Julys. You made one post-trade deadline move. Uh, Javi Lopez to the Red Sox in August of 06. Uh, Jeff Conine in, in August of 06. And then Steve Traxel to the Cubs uh, in 07 in August. When you're in, in that job and you get to the trade deadline and you haven't made any moves, buy or sell. Uh, yep. is, that, is that a frustrating feeling? Is it uh, a feeling of sort of, you know, not, not having been able to get the job done you were hoping to get? Or do you say, look, the things that were out there weren't going to benefit our team, and we're better off here than we were if I had just made a move to make a move? Yeah, we, we had, you know, those two deals I mentioned earlier, we had two really good deals that would have changed our organization around and started the rebuild because I thought that was the right direction to go. Um, so there was a, a definite level of frustration because there was a lot of man hours that were put in, you know, throughout the entire organization. And there was some there was some frustration on the other side, teams that thought we were going to trade, you know, as an example, Miguel Tejada to them at that point. Um, so, you know, I think I think that part, those two, those were missed opportunities for the Orioles to, to get back to uh, two impactful uh, pieces. Um, I, you know, and the, the Roy Oswald deal I mentioned earlier, um, getting back Oswald, part of the reason why that blew up was on the Astro side. I was going to take Oswald because he didn't really fit for us. He was going to be a free agent the, in like 08, but I was going to flip him to Texas. And that at that point, they had a young guy named Brandon McCarthy that, <laughs> that we were going to get in return. So it was going to be a young pitcher that we had control over for a long period of time rather than Oswald for a couple of years. And, and um, the, the uh, Astros owner at the time, Drayton McLean, disliked Texas and the Rangers so much. And Oswald was his favorite player. He, he could not fathom uh, Roy Oswald pitching for the Texas Rangers in state. And so that, that unfortunately wasn't able to keep, we weren't able to keep quiet and, and got out there. And, and that's, that, that nicks that deal, unfortunately. So now here we are, 2018, Jim Duquette, you're a media superstar, watching the trade deadline from the other side of the table, uh, from my side of the table. What's it like for you now, watching 
these deals happen, watching all the, you know, hearing all the buzz, hearing all the rumors and all the moves. Uh, what's it like for you watching from this side? Getting more sleep. I can tell you that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I got I to figure out how you do that because I don't get any sleep this week. I so I know. Uh, that's, well, I don't that's, have, uh, luckily I don't have to break, I'm not breaking news. You're breaking it. I'm, I'm reacting to it. Right. I will say, <laughs> I will say this. That that and there is a definite difference, in, as you know, on that side of things. Breaking them, you have to be on point, you know, twenty four seven, just like the just like the front office executives, and, and get hear from your sources. Um, so, from my side, you know, I enjoy the what what I'm able to do is evaluate, you know, it, it all, these deals in their entirety rather than just their impact on my own particular team. That's the thing that I like on this side of things, where where you can start to see some of the aggressive GMs and, and the personalities that they have in their clubhouse. Cause I've, I've been in an om- almost every clubhouse, you know, each, each year, that's, that's the ability we have to go in and you go in there too. You get a good feel for teams and the makeup and the chemistry in a club and how a particular player might fit in that, in that situation, not just, uh, not just on the talent side, but, but, you know, on the makeup side. And so, you can kind of see, wow, man, this is a perfect fit. Like Cole Hamels in in Chicago, that's a great, that's a perfect fit. So is Hap with the Yankees. Like you can see, you know, so so those are the things that I kind of I look at kind of the subtleties of some of these deals. Well, Jim, I am very happy that you are on our team, and I thank you very much for taking the time once again for this special episode of Executive Access. I'm I'm sure we'll figure out another one to do along the way here before the season ends. This is. Uh, Nice little departure from our normal routine. And I always enjoy talking to you and getting your insight on these things. So thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's episode of Executive Access. Next week, we will sit down. We'll back to our regular format with JJ Piccolo, Vice President and Assistant GM and Player Personnel for the Kansas City Royals. We'll talk about the disappointment of a shortened playing career, his time with the Braves, helping the Royals into a World Series champion, and much, much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. For Jim Duquette, I'm Mark Feinsand. See you next week. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.